Okay, church councils, the most fun topic in church history. It's very interesting. I mean, of all these men they've, they, that we've talked about, they wrote great works and preached sermons. But what these councils decided has also been a great influence on the church throughout the ages. So let me open in prayer and we shall begin. Lord, thank you so much for our day. We're glad to be here. We're blessed. Help us to encourage one another in the faith. Help us to encourage one another even in um, looking back at these men in church history and how they uh, kept on working to clarify the truth of Scripture, explaining what the Bible says. It helps us today. helps us to be orthodox, rightly interpreting the Word. And so I pray that you would give us insight even as we study these doctrines. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is doctrinal. Whenever we study systematic theology, we're studying what started with these men. Of course, it goes back to the Bible. We never want to say it's just based in church history. But how to explain what the Bible says has to be hashed out over the centuries. Otherwise, you're just citing a verse here. And you know how that goes when you're arguing theology with somebody, right? You cite a verse and then what? They cite a verse, and you cite a verse, and they cite a verse, and you cite, you know. Instead of doing that, theology takes what the whole Bible says. And so you might have ten verses to support a certain teaching. And the main doctrinal issue in the early church, do you remember what that was? Main doctrinal issue? I need to have another book giveaway so I can reward people. What's the main issue they kept on coming back to? Deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Something today we kind of take for granted and our Protestant circles, Reformed Protestants, don't typically debate the doctrine, the deity of Christ, and the humanity of Christ. But this was something early on. It was something that false teachers could very easily mislead and persuade the church in a certain direction. So just to review you, we're on the fifth of the early church councils. There is a lot. The Catholic Church recognizes quite a few. We're just going to recognize a few of the early ones. And then after that, it goes to something we can't today look back and agree with. So the Council of Nicaea was the first big one called by the Emperor Constantine. It couldn't happen. Council for the whole Roman Empire of of pastors, of bishops, couldn't happen until it was safe to do so. Otherwise, it's like putting all the fish in one barrel. They could just come in and execute all the bishops, all the pastors, and everybody would have to start over and their local churches. So once it was safe to do so, the emperor actually calls this one, it's all about the deity of Christ. Is he the same substance, the same nature as the Father? And of course, the ruling was, he is, of course, the same. Homo usios, the same. He's not similar, like Arius said. Then that didn't quite settle it, so many decades later, it comes up again. They made a more official ruling on it. Council of Constantinople, number one, which means there's going to be another council there. We call this number one because we look back and know there's another one. They didn't at the time. So again, called by the emperor, Council of Ephesus. We looked at this last week. This had to do with how do we refer to Mary? And is Mary the God-bearer, the man-bearer, or the Christ-bearer? There's good arguments just on the basis of those words, but probably the best position at this council was the God-bearer because he is the God-man. The problem is the Catholic Church will later take that, the Roman Catholics, and elevate Mary to a great high place. Then we looked at the Council of Chalcedon. This is a huge one. It it really settled the Arian issue once and for all by making a more developed 
doctrinal statement. It is, it's really the Apostles' Creed, which was then updated at the Council of Nicaea, and then Council of Chalcedon updates it even more. So again, dealing with the, um, who is Christ? Does he have just one nature, two natures, or so on, three, four? Different people were involved. And now we're up to number five, the Second Council of Constantinople. So Chalcedon was important because it forever settled the wording. It's two natures, one person. Christ is two natures, one person. In fact, uh, here's the exact wording right here at the bottom. Two natures without confusion. There, there's no confusion. There, there's the deity and the humanity. They're not so blended that there, there's a confusion there. There's no change. They don't change and develop. The divinity doesn't change. It adds humanity to himself. Christ did. Division. So it's not two separate people walking around. Then they just join together to become Christ, the deity and the humanity. So there's no division, no separation. It's one person. He's one person, two natures. That's the right biblical teaching. So now we come to 553. 553. And after Chalcedon, some people continue to debate the integrity of Christ's human nature. So who Christ is as a whole has been settled But now they're drilling down, trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean about his humanity? And so there's a group called the Monophysites. They focus more on the one nature instead of two. They're saying that after the incarnation, he he becomes, he takes on deity in other words. But the biblical position, what Chalcedon had already said, was two natures from the beginning, from the conception in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. And even today, Christ is one person, two natures. Well, the monophysites, just like any heretical group, gets very upset. They start fighting. If you really want to, uh, in those days, disrupt your enemy's church, you just walk in and start beating them up. And so in the East especially, this was very popular. The Oriental Church, that's, that's more Eastern. Maybe think uh, Syria today, towards Persia, the gospel was spreading outside the Roman Empire. Monophysites raged in various factions, so they divided into all these sub-factions. Severians, Phantasists, and the Julianists. Let's look more closely at what the argument was about. So the Monophysites follow this guy named Eutyches, or Eutyches. That's also referred to as Eutychianism. He said, no, I don't care what Chalcedon said, there's one nature, Christ. And he's just got human flesh. You know, it's, it's like a cloak. It just covers him. So that's what we see, but not really two natures. And these said that Chalcedon would lead to two persons. If you believe what they said back at Chalcedon, that's two people. That doesn't make sense. It's sort of like today when people come to you and say, how can you believe in three persons, one God? You really believe in three gods, don't you? You're a pagan. Well, that's not true. We know what the Bible says, but they can't conceptualize it. And so they start making these kinds of accusations. And so their shibboleth, their, their key phrase was, God has been crucified. God has been crucified. Because he wasn't human, it was God himself who was crucified, which is heresy. So diophysites, dio means two, mono means one. And physites, physics, nature. So one nature, two nature. Diophysites believed in two natures. One person, two natures. They were upholding the council of Chalcedon. This position was supported 
by the bishop or sort of the head pastor of all the churches in that city, Byzantium, where Constantinople was, who taught Christ's humanity was impersonal and who also brought into the Chalcedonian tradition the monophysite emphasis. So he stressed this guy did too, too much, the two natures, and he said the humanity of Christ was made personal by its union. So that kind of becomes a third now split. And this third group, the in hypothesia, made Christ's humanity impersonal, less than whole. He's not fully human, in other words, they said. So yeah, there's two, this guy said, Leontius, there's two natures. We can kind of agree with that. But the one human nature, it's not really fully human. So that becomes not biblical, splits off as now a third group. So here's the council. Again, called by the emperor at the time, Justinian. Now, there's no more Western Empire. There's only an Eastern Roman Empire at this time. We'll come to why that is in a minute. But Justinian was a powerful emperor. He restored much of the West that had been taken by barbarians. And he is an admirer of the true doctrine that was discussed at Chalcedon. But he was convinced, I think later by his wife, Theodora, of the monophysite position. She was a big supporter of the one, the people who said Christ is one nature. And Theodora is quite the character. She had quite the pull on the king. Often people say she, she ruled the throne, told him what to do. So Justinian writes quite a bit of, of things on the law, the Roman law, and also some on theology. And he wrote this book called The Three Chapters. And he condemned the Nestorians. That's good. And he also condemned people who wrote against Cyril of Alexandria. So he calls this council to end the controversy. All the emperors call councils to end the fighting. They don't want to see their subjects fighting. They're supposed to be fighting the barbarians, right? They're supposed to, it's like infighting in the church today. We don't want to have that. We want to focus on getting the gospel to the people who are unbelievers and fighting against the culture of the sin in the world, not amongst ourselves. And so he's thinking empire-wide. He's the Christian emperor. He kind of thinks he, the emperors by this time think they have sort of dominance over all the churches. And so he calls it, and there's 164 bishops attending. They have eight sessions. And they do condemn the Nestorians. They agree on that. Because the Nestorians were saying God was crucified. One of the Trinity has suffered. Uh, The net result was that the diophysitic, the two natures position of Chalcedon was given a bit of a monophysitic interpretation. So this sounds a little bit confusing, confusing, but basically they're saying, well, we agree with the two natures, but then again, who's to say that one nature is not such bad language? So there's just a lot of confusion here. It's like, can't we just agree to, to get along? Can't we just blend these positions together? Let's make the emperor happy. You know, let's, let's, make, let's make the emperor happy and just get along, try to, try to find some common ground here. So... They didn't really solve anything. The controversy continued. And the doctrine established at Chalcedon is now morphing over time in certain churches, certain leaders. And also the result is that the one nature people, the monophysites, left the council. They continued their belief. They went further east and they split into Jacobites, Abyssinians, and Armenians, not Armenians. Not Arminians, like the doctrine today of Arminianism, but Armenian is a country. It's a place in the map. 
This produced a distinction in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So many in the Eastern Orthodox Church today, like the, I think it's called the Assyrian Orthodox, do not think of Christ as having two natures. They're more Nestorian, which is heretical. So we need another council. Let's continue all of this fighting. But of course, this is now how many years? We're at uh, 553 to 680. So more than 100 years has gone by. There's still this disagreement. It was called, this council was, the third one now in Constantinople as a result of 40 more years of fighting over the nature of Christ. Some suggest the council was politically motivated to unite the earlier monophysites with the Orthodox Church. So again, call a council, get everybody together. Let's just see if we can't agree. Let's just move on in agreement. What's the problem? You can't agree with false teaching. You can't agree with that. And if the Orthodox, the true church, agrees with the monophysites, then they would be agreeing with heresy. Remember, the monophysites, Christ is only one nature. That's not according to Scripture. That's heretical. So it comes out in even more fun terms for you to try to remember. The monothelites and the diothelites. Sounds like uh, some kind of athletic competition, right? Or something you drink. Have some diathelites. Monothelites. So this came out of the monophysite. Remember, monophysite, one nature of Christ. They said the human and divine wills of Christ are merged into one will. So supported by a couple of these guys, Sergius, Macarius, Patriarch of Antioch. So even Antioch, once known for its literal interpretation of Scripture, is starting to drift here. And basically what they're saying is, There's only one will. There's only one mind in Christ. Yeah, he's got a human nature, but it's more like a cloak around him. It's not a full human nature. It's the one divine mind, the one divine will that you see in Christ. And the the dio, dio again is two. And thelos thelos or or theleo in Greek is will. So will is is what we decide we're going to do. It's our mind. It's our decision-making organ of the body. The Diothelites said no. Two distinct, inseparable natures in Christ means he has two wills. So think of it like this. You're a human. What makes you human? Is it just the fact that you have a body? Does that make you a living being, a human? No, that doesn't. There are lots of dead bodies buried in the ground and their spirit's no longer there. So you've got to have a body and a spirit to be human, fully alive human. There's a time when our body and spirit splits after death. But what's going to happen in the restoration, the resurrection? Back together. For unbelievers and believers, right? Unbelievers, resurrection, spirit and body, uh, resurrected body, go and unbelievers into hell, believers into eternal heaven. So to be fully human, you have to have a will. Not just a brain, but we're talking about the ability to make decisions. Even people who are handicapped and don't have that full ability, that's not because it's absent, but it's because it's affected by disease or birth defects and so on. That's different. They still have it. It's just affected negatively. So in other words, Christ can't be fully human unless he has a human will. And we know the Son of God has a divine will. So all these people are saying is, hey, this was already decided in 451 at Chalcedon. Why are we still arguing this? He has two natures. 
He has two wills. You don't want to confuse the divine and the human nature because it leads to all of these problems. This is a trick question, by the way, that often comes up. You, you might see these surveys online. I know Tim Challies, the blogger, he, he runs these surveys every couple of years. And it's to test your theology. And this is the one that people miss the most right here. Because you want to think, oh yeah, Christ has one will. He's not schizophrenic. He's not, you know, got different minds. No, two wills, but they are lined up exactly together. They're not the same. What's our goal in life? To line up our minds with the mind of God. That's how we grow in godliness. When we line up our minds with the mind of God, the will of God, then we live out what his word says. So how do we do that? We do that through the study of the word, asking for help through prayer, through the spirit in us. And so remember, two natures, two wills. So in this council, called again by the emperor, now we're up to Constantine IV. Not that they go right in a row, right? It's just hundreds of years later. This guy's named Constantine. He happens to be the fourth one uh, a, with that name as an emperor. So they call him Constantine IV. And he supports what now they're calling the Bishop of Rome, the Pope by this time. And uh, he supports this guy, Agatho. And there's really no contest. The monothelitic view, the one will view, was not well substantiated and bitterly denounced. In other words, they showed up. They tried to make a fuss. They had no biblical argument. And so the rest of the people, the, the ones who agree with Scripture that Christ has two wills, two natures, denounce that view. So here's the result. Anathematize. What does that mean? Excommunicated. If you hold this view, they said, then you're not part of the true church. And this includes the uh, Pope Honorius I, because he supported it. So he was Pope up until 638. When was the council? 680. So it's always easy to go back and talk about these guys that have already died, right? So the current council in 680 says that position is not doctrinally true. It's not scriptural. You can't believe in and be a Christian. And that includes this guy, Honorius, who was the bishop of Rome back in the early 600s. A strong argument from history against papal infallibility. If the Pope's always right, like the Catholic Church says today, then what happened with this guy? Because he was heretical. Think about the logic of that. Today they say the Pope is infallible. When he speaks on doctrine, he cannot be wrong. He is the successor of the Apostle Peter. He speaks for God. He speaks for Christ. He's the vicar of Christ. And yet here's a guy from 625 to 638 who was called Pope. And he was completely wrong. Even the later council said he was wrong. Uh, some of these monothelitic followers went on to become tritheists. To say that there's three gods. Okay, fine. We'll just divide it into three different gods. Uh, diothelitism was supported. Again, two wills. And that pretty much settled the issue. All right, so we're done with councils. Did we cover all five? Six. Verse six, we're in agreement with us, Reformed Protestants. After that, they start debating about icons, and it's more of an uh, east-west thing. Can you worship icons or not? And they, they decide in one council that you can, and then they decide in the next council that you can't, and back and forth. And it just gets silly. Then by the time you get to the, the Middle Ages, later in the like 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, it's uh, councils in Rome to decide on doctrine of Mary, doctrine of transubstantiation, all these different doctrines. 
all the way up, they'll go all the way up to the Council of Trent, and then Vatican I, Vatican II, all these later councils that we cannot agree with, and they really don't have anything to do with a scriptural issue. So because it's the season and it applies to our class, I saw this on the internet. This guy, I don't know his name, but he has this, this I think this is from Twitter, Facebook, somewhere. He's called the Church Curmudgeon. He says funny things. So here's a little Christmas song for you. Up at Nicaea, Bishop's Paws, Arius and Santa Claus. One claims a time when the sun was not. One says that's heretical thought. Ho, 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 who's going to go? Ho, 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 who's going to go? Off with a right hook, good Saint Nick. Down goes the dirty heretic. Y'all remember Nicholas punched Arius? There was a guy named Nicholas. They call him a saint in the Catholic Church today. Supposedly, he gave gifts to kids, poor kids who didn't have enough money for the parents to get them something nice. And he went around giving gifts. I think it was on, um, uh, what's the end of the 12 days of Christmas called? The day of Epiphany, I think, um, in the church calendar at this time. So he would put little gifts in their shoes that were left outside the door, the poor kids. And then he ends up at the uh, council of Nicaea because he's a bishop. He's a pastor in one of the small villages. And supposedly he punched Arius in the face for his heresy. So here we go. I only came to give presents to kids and punch heretics. And I just ran out of presents. So a little humor. You can't say that I don't uh, you know, joke a little bit here sometimes when it's appropriate. Okay, well, that concludes the council's. It seems a lot like a lot of technical stuff, and mainly because those words are confusing, and sometimes what they believed was confusing. Again, we just we know the truth today, and we take that for granted, and we don't think, how did that come about? How did the wording of two natures and two wills come about? So just remember, one person, two natures. If you have two natures, you have two wills. And of course, Christ is the only one who has two natures. Now we come to the fall of the Roman Empire. So the first few slides is less about the church and more about how Rome fell, which we're going to see how that affects the church after this. So what's that that a picture of? Anybody been to Rome? The Colosseum. And this is what would be under the floor of the Colosseum where they kept all the animal cages and the gladiators and all of these doors, these trap doors could be pulled up so slaves would run out on on the dusty floor uh, floor, and they would pull up a trap door that nobody saw before, and you know out would pop animals if they were you know killing Christians or just having battles against animals. Sometimes gladiators would run out, and so it's just sort of this entertainment where things were always popping out and surprising the crowd. And if you if you go to our website, you'll see that I use a, a picture of the Colosseum for the Romans sermon series. Which, to most people, they're not going to stop and think. But it's not exactly accurate. Does anybody know why? Having the Colosseum on the picture for a series of Romans is not exactly accurate. Because it's not built until after 70 AD. So the guy who builds it is the one who is sieging Jerusalem with his son Titus, Vespasian. And 70 AD... Before the city falls, the current emperor dies. Vespasian rushes back to Rome to take over. And his son finishes the siege, destroys uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then his father builds this Colosseum to entertain the people of Rome. 
So that's not exactly accurate. Why? Because the letter of the Romans was written long before 70 AD. But it's close enough because it's a picture of its main monument in Rome today. So when we think of Rome today, we think of often the Colosseum or maybe the Forum. Sometimes people think of the Vatican. So at, a, at the height of its power, the Roman Empire stretched across three continents. Three continents, from Britain in the west to Syria in the east. It was huge. Here's a map right here. 117 AD, that is the height of the empire. Now, the way that the Romans govern this is that the brown is what the republic conquered. The Republic. So the Republic is the group of senators that ruled over Rome up until the first emperor. So they took North Africa, which was Carthage, and they took Greece, which is in the east. So that's the brown. Now, when the first emperor comes along, that's the Emperor Augustus. So when Christ is born, it says in Luke that Augustus reigned as emperor. He is the first emperor. He took power, really Julius Caesar, his uh, adopted father, takes power from the Senate through a civil war. And Augustus then assumes that power and becomes the first emperor. But he doesn't get to reign over the brown. That's still the Senate. You want to keep the Senate happy. He just gets everything else they take, the emperors do. And so they expand all the way out to the green. And this is where all the money is. The trade happens in the brown, but the, the wealth, the conquest, the treasure comes from conquest of the green. And it expands all the way up to that wall next to Scotland and the north. Of course, the German border and the, uh, in the northeast and all the way out to almost Persia and the east. Egypt is included in North Africa. So people that we've been talking about, like Augustine in North Africa, people up in Gaul, which is modern-day France. They're all part of the Roman Empire. They just consider themselves Romans by this point. This is the height of the empire. Over time, though, especially during the 4th and 5th centuries, the West experienced a gradual but significant influx of Germanic tribesmen. So many of our ancestors were running into Roman troops and taking more land along the German border. One of these groups is called the Visigoths, and they began actively attacking northern Italy after the death of Theodosius I in 395. So Theodosius was the guy who said Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. After he dies, here comes the barbarians. And they're getting so close, they're getting to northern Italy. So not that big a deal if they're just coming across the border. But if they get into Italy, you know, that's like Texas. You know, nobody wants to see barbarians coming into Texas. That's our home state. Italy is where Rome is. And so by the time barbarians are getting into Italy, it's bad. So this starts in 395. By 409, here come the Vandals, the Alans, the Sueve. And they had invaded Gaul and Spain with little resistance. So the military is very weak at this time. Now, who do you think is going to get blamed? Anytime something bad happens in the Roman Empire, who's going to get blamed? Christians. And it's not just Christians because most of the empire is Christian. But it's the pagans who are still around saying, see what happens when we adopt Christianity? 
even later liberal historians, much later in our modern time, will look back and say Christianity weakened the empire because they adopted some of these things that Christ taught on the Sermon on the Mount and the army was weakened. I don't think that's true, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on why Rome fell. Um, I'll mention a few things in a minute though. In 410, the worst happened. The Visigoths finally reached Rome and sacked the city. People saw it coming. Uh, they knew the Visigoths were going to seize the city. Most of the wealthy got out. Uh, some of the poorer folks stayed there. The Visigoths just came in and they got all the good stuff and then they left. They didn't destroy the city. They didn't stay and take over. Their king didn't set up himself as emperor or anything like that. They just came for the good stuff and then they went on pillaging through the countryside. Because the barbarians were coming into the empire, they needed all the troops they could get. So they started withdrawing the troops from the borders, including all the way out in Roman Britain. And so that's abandoned. That leaves it wide open. And here comes the Angles and the Saxons, or what we call today Anglo-Saxon uh, group together. That's where we get the English language. Many of us have Anglo-Saxon heritage. You know, our ancestors were a lot of barbarians who took over and killed Christians and uh, destroyed churches. In 429, the Vandals cross now. And Vandals, we get the name Vandalism from them because they destroyed cities. They destroyed things when they came through. So the Vandals crossed over from Spain. They go into North um, Africa. They capture Carthage, the rebuilt city there. They establish a powerful naval presence in the Mediterranean. This is around the time of Augustine's death. He gets sick. He's under siege. His city is Hippo by the Vandals. And he ends up dying during that time. Now in 444, here come the Huns. Attila the Hun invades Gaul. In 451, he invades Italy. He is going to take Rome. He's going to destroy Rome. And there's a famous story about Leo I. He's the bishop of Rome at this time. He comes out. He talks to Attila. Attila turns around and goes home. No one really knows what was said. Some people speculate he paid him a bunch of gold that the church had saved up. Others say... He just told them this wouldn't be a good idea. Our God's going to punish you if you do this. Whatever it was, Attila, who was a very prideful man, decided to turn around and not attack Rome. So it's still existing, but it's been sacked in 410. The Vandals are ravaging the countryside. The Anglos and the Jutes are taking Britain away. You're going to expect pressure from the east as well. So in 455, the Vandals attacked Rome. And they plundered the city. By 476, the city of Rome was under the rule of the barbarians. And Roman control over the West had essentially ended. So the barbarians are everywhere. All that's really left is the city. The emperor at the time doesn't even live there. He lives in Ravenna, which is a much healthier place to live. And what happens is this, this guy, Odiocher, this barbarian king, comes into Rome. He says, I'm the king of Italy. And I want you to resign as emperor. There are no more emperors. It was just a young, young man as the emperor at the time. He resigns and that's it. No more Western Roman Empire. So here's just an example of all these invasions happening. Uh, you've got people coming in from all over the place. The empire is so weak. You can see the blue line. That's the Vandals. They come from, from way up north. They end up just going through the edge of the empire. Sacking, pillaging. They eventually set up camp in North Africa and use that as a base to keep attacking all kinds of the islands and Rome itself. Green are the Huns. 
they're, they're more like what would later be called the Mongols. They just come in on horseback with bows and they, they pillage and they take and then they return home. But the Visigoths come and stay and the Ostrogoths come and stay as well. So the Eastern Empire, the Eastern part, is not going to fall though until 1453. So almost a thousand years after the West, you have Constantinople and the Eastern part of the empire existing. Eventually it'll fall when the Ottoman Turks, the Muslims, come in and take it after many attempts. And we'll look at that a little bit later in the Middle Ages. But by 476, the Western Roman Empire had been split up into a number of barbarian kingdoms. And Roman influence began to diminish. Germanic kingdoms in Europe were established. These kingdoms shared certain Roman customs. So they thought of themselves as inheriting the Roman Empire. They tried to speak Latin. Didn't work out so well, so it turns into French, Spanish, different languages. The Romance languages of today. And they adopted Christianity. Most of them were already somewhat Christian, but they weren't Orthodox Christians. Most of them were Arian Christians. Remember, Arianism spreads really fast because it's popular, it's well-liked. There are songs. And all of these people had taken the Arian form of Christianity up into the German tribes. Now, when they come down and take over, the ruling class now is Arian. So here's what it looks like after Rome falls. One king doesn't take over the whole empire. It was hard enough to manage for the Romans. They just are happy to have their own little kingdom. So it's starting to look a little bit more like modern day maps. You have a group called the Franks that end up settling in Germany. Alemanni, that's just a, a, really another word for Germans. Burgundians and the area of France. The Visigoths end up taking much of modern day Spain and France and so on. Yellow is the Eastern Roman Empire. So some of the things we're going to talk about now in the Middle Ages happen in the Eastern Roman Empire and, and the rise of Islam. But there are still Christians in the West. These barbarians did not come in and kill everyone. But there is a difference. Now you have the true church that's no longer in power politically. But the problem is the church is going to now try to assume what the emperor once did. So the man in Rome, the bishop of Rome, is going to see himself more and more as an emperor-like figure over the Christian world, Christendom. And so now that brings us right up to the rise of Islam. So the West is gone. The East is still there. It's very wealthy, but also very weak. Very weak. The more wealth a nation has, often the lazier they are. And the weaker they get. So why did Rome fall? Why did the Western Roman Empire fall? Probably because they had way too many slaves. Uh, much of their population. Some estimate half the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. And they were slaves of the barbarian conquest. So here comes your kinfolk marching their army down. And there's a million plus slaves in Rome. Are you going to stay there and get killed or go join your kinfolk and fight with them? Because now you've been set free. So that was a problem. Uh, also, there's just many political infighting, civil wars in the two and three hundreds, uh, really late three hundreds and in four hundreds, all these civil wars, weak emperors, infighting, uh, problems in the government, problems in the military, wealth, got lazy, had nothing to do with Christianity. It had to do with the way the government was being run and the fact that they had way too many slaves. They should have had no slaves, but they didn't stop to think. What if these slaves all rebelled with the barbarians? And the funny thing is, if you study much of this, 
you'll find that the Romans hired these barbarians to come and fight for them in civil wars. Now when the civil war is over and one guy reigns supreme as emperor, what do you think is going to happen with those barbarians? Hey, we made a pretty good living fight, fighting for this guy. Now he's in control. Time to pay up, emperor. Give us some more money. He says, no thanks. Well, fine, we'll come and take it. And that's what happens. They come and siege Rome and say, you better pay us our wages, which it's debatable whether they were paid or not before that. So the Romans made a lot of mistakes like that, hiring foreign mercenary armies that then got a view, like the Babylonians did, of Jerusalem. They got a view and came and took it. All right, the rise of Islam, beginning with Muhammad. Muhammad was born in Mecca in 570. So Mecca is in uh, pretty much Saudi Arabia today, is that right? Who knows their Middle East? Saudi Arabia? He grew up as a shepherd boy. He's under the tutelage, the, the learning of his uncle. And he became a wealthy merchant. So the thing about the Middle East is it's very wealthy at this time, and even today because of oil. But back then it was because of trade. Trade had to pass from Egypt upwards. And so a lot of times, even in your Bible maps, you'll see things like the King's Highway or the Way of the Sea, where all this trade went back and forth. So his uncle is doing well. Muhammad does well. At 25 years old, he marries a 40-year-old wife. Why would he marry someone 40 years old? Probably because she had some influence, some power. In 605, he helped to settle a tribal dispute over the restoration of the black stone. So there's this black stone. It fell out of the sky, some kind of meteorite. And the people at the time worshipped it. And so there's this debate over who owns it. And he helps settle it. There's no Muslim belief. There's no Islam yet. But the black stone's there and it's there today. They're still there today. He had frequent epileptic attacks. At first, he thought this was the devil. But at age 40, he said it was God communicating to him. So this is now 610. He's 40 years old. And he said, God is communicating with me through visions and through his wife, uh, Kadia. The message was, here's what God was saying to him, that the prophet of the Arabian God is, he is the prophet. Muhammad is the prophet of the Arabian God, and they call that God Allah. Belief in Allah already existed for many years. So there are lots of gods in the desert, in the Arabian Peninsula. There are lots of different beliefs. Um, there's no, what we know as Islam today, but there was a God that they looked at, they called Allah, or Allah, however you want to say it. So here's a long quote from uh, a guy named McClintock in volume six of his writings on Islam. He said, Muhammad was endowed with a nervous constitution and a lively imagination. It was not at all unnatural for him to come after a time to regard himself as actually called of God to build up his people in the new faith. Muhammad, as we gather from the oldest and most trustworthy narratives, was an epileptic and as such was considered to be possessed of evil spirits. So that's what people thought about him. At first he believed what they said, but gradually he came to the conclusion confirmed by his friends, there you go, his friends, that Demons had no power over so pure and pious a man as he was. And he conceived the idea that he was not controlled by evil spirits, but that he was visited by angels whom he dis disposed uh, to hallucinations. I think there's a typo there. And a vision, an audition, afflicted with the morbid state of body, mind, sought in dreams. And he even while awake conceived that he saw. What seemed to him good and true after such uh, epileptic attacks, he esteemed revelation 
and which he at least is the first stage of this pathetic course firmly believe and which imparted to his pensive variable character the necessary courage and endurance to brave all mortifications and perils. So he said, I've seen visions and heard from God. Note, Allah was an old high God viewed as the true God. The Quran rewrites the history to include Allah as the God of the nation Israel. The place of the Old Testament was added later to accommodate opposition to Mohammedanism teaching. So what they said was, when they, when they ran into Judaism, when they ran into the Jews and Israel north of them, they said, oh, this is the same God. We have it right. You guys have it wrong. Y'all need to correct your Bibles. We have the Quran. I'm just giving you the brief picture here. Uh, he began to preach publicly and attract followers. It was his followers who wrote down his words in the Quran. That's another way you can spell it. Um, he reportedly received his revelations from an angel. So an angel is coming to him and speaking to him, you know, out, out somewhere on a mountain in a cave. And so now he's the prophet of God. He's going to speak for God. And he's active in Mecca and Medina. These are the two holy cities today of Islam. Both in the western part of modern Saudi Arabia along the Red Sea. So he has this new faith. And he had a few followers, his friends, of course, his family. But many opposed it. They believed in other gods, other religions. His preaching was not well received. And thus he resorted to propaganda. So in Medina in 620, he becomes a ruler of the city and a legislator. So he gets political power in Medina. In 620, his wife dies. She's much older than him. So he marries two more wives at the same time. Then he continued to marry wives until he had 12 uh, Muhammad finally launched a military campaign to subdue the world with his army of 305 followers. And the motto became Islam, tribute, or the sword. So he becomes a ruler. He gets people under him. He gets enough followers to start an army in 630. And he just starts attacking Arabian cities. And here's your choice. You can submit and become a Muslim, become part of Islam. You can give us money, pay us off while you stay around. Or are you going to die? So in one day, his men massacred 600 resisting Jews while enslaving the women and the children. A couple of years later, he went after Mecca. Mecca, he destroyed 360 idols. So that tells you how many different pagan religions were in that area. They destroyed 360 idols. They captured the famous black stone. I don't know how to pronounce it. Kaaba, I guess. The Kaaba being an ancient stone, a pagan worship. Islam then taught that Abraham built that stone with the help of Ishmael. So Ishmael is the father of all the Arabian peoples, according to the scriptures. He recognized that and he said, that's the true line. It goes through Ishmael and Abraham and Ishmael built this black stone that they worship today. Or they wouldn't say they worship it, but essentially they do. So they recognize Muhammad as a ruler. He has power. He has control. He's their new ruler. He dies, though, in 632, and he was getting ready to plan a great campaign against the Eastern Roman Empire. That's the bad guy in the area. The Eastern Roman Empire either controlled Saudi Arabia or had great influence there because it's right next to their empire. So if you want to go after the, the people with power, the people with money, wealth, you're going to attack the Eastern Roman Empire. So they started capturing many Christian strongholds. 
force is what made him successful. His armies were fanatical. There's absolutely no way we can let any other religion exist inside of our control. And we're going to expand our control and take as much as we can. So this starts with him, then he dies in 632. By 715, all of North Africa had fallen. So he, he goes out, he takes Arabia, he takes parts of India. He now, or not him, his followers, his generals, basically go into um, North Africa. That, that fell to the Arab forces, the Muslim forces. He goes across, well, Muslim, Christ, uh, Muslim belief goes across the Strait of Gibraltar, through Spain, and into Gaul. So a hundred years after he died, they're all the way up into Spain. They've come across the top of Africa. Now they're going across the Mediterranean Ocean into Spain. They're finally halted by this guy, Charles Martel, at the Battle of Tours. That's modern-day France. And they stop on that side. They can't go any further. They stay in Spain for a while until they're kicked out. So what happens after Muhammad? Well, he had begun preaching Islam at Mecca, then later at Medina. And he united the Arab tribes into a political, religious kingdom or empire. He dies in 632 from illness. And there's this big disagreement amongst who's actually going to take over. So this is where it kind of gets nerdy if you're not into Islamic history. Um, it's okay if you, you know, want to lay back, take a nap. Better to do it now than in the sermon later, right? Abu Bakr is one of Muhammad's closest friends. And he emerges as the new leader. What's the leader called? The caliph or caliph. Well, he dies a couple of years later, though, in 634. So he's succeeded by this other guy, Umar, and Uthman, and finally, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ali was the cousin and son-in-law of Muhammad. So all three of these early Muslim leaders were assassinated. So it's sort of like we saw in some of the Roman empires. It's just one right after the other being killed. There's no leader for the Muslim armies for very long. Ali was involved in the first Muslim civil war. So there's actually infighting to who's going to control these people. Who's going to reign? Who's going to reign after Muhammad dies? Under these four successors, uh, there's four. They're known as the rightly guided caliphs. The Muslim empire grew quickly and it went east into Persia. It went north into Byzant uh, Byzantium or Eastern Roman Empire. After Ali's death, uh, another guy controlled and uh, seized reign. It started what's called the Umid dynasty. So when Muhammad dies, that's already there. Okay, I've done that one. Uh, under this new dynasty, non-Arabs were not given the same social and economic status as Arab Muslims, even if they converted to Islam. So now it's not just convert to the religion, but you have to be of the Arabian tribes, descendants, to be a true Muslim. Some of the descendants of um, Matalib, Muhammad's uncle, started a rebellion by gaining support from these non-Arabs who had converted. So there's a civil war, and this dynasty was overthrown and replaced by a new dynasty. A dynasty is just a, a reign of kings that are descended one from another. So the new one is called the Abbasid dynasty. So we're going now through 600s, 700s, 800s. The centuries that followed are known as the Islamic Golden Age. Because they had conquered so much and adopted much of what they stole from the uh, Greeks, the Romans, and even from the East as far as India and China, 
they are now entering what's called the Islamic Golden Age, a time when new inventions come about. Uh, things like the windmill, much uh, farming uh, implements and various things are invented, and, and astronomy and mathematics and the fun stuff like algebra, all of these things are developed. The capital city of this Abbasid dynasty was Babylon. So here's what it looks like in the different phases. <clears throat> Muhammad's just in the darkest part there. When he's alive, he expands and pretty much takes control over the Arabian Peninsula. There's not a lot of major cities there, so he just had to take Medina, Mecca, a few other places. When he dies, his followers expand it to the orangish color there, and that's up until 661. And then they continue all the way into the 700s, taking the yellow. So pretty much from the borders of India all the way out to Spain, across North Africa. Now they don't yet have the um, Asia Minor there, modern day Turkey. They will eventually take that. They'll cross the sea there and try to take Europe, but they get stopped in the Middle Ages in Austria or Vienna. So after this golden age, the Abbasid dynasty, after 950, the dynasty began to break up into independent Islamic states. So it can't hold the, the power, the control. So this is what it looks like by the 9th and 10th centuries. I'm just giving you a brief overview because we're going to come back and now look at things like the Crusades and what happens with the Muslims and Christians during the Middle Ages. So in 1055, a new tribe arrives from the steppes out towards Russia. They're called the Turks. And this specific group is the Seljuk Turks. They gain control of the former Abbasid Caliphate, the empire there. And Muslim expansion continued during this time through both conquest, proselytism, through trade routes that had been established into Africa and the West and Asia and the East. So by the 800s, some of these Muslim conquests in the West, especially in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, began to be reversed. So by the 800s, there are Christians living amongst the Muslims and they want their land back. They want their territory back. So they have a king, they get an army, and they began to push the Muslims south out of Spain. After 1,000 Christian kingdoms in Europe began banding together to undo Muslim conquests. These military endeavors are known as the Crusades. And we will come to the Crusades probably in a, in a, after the holidays. And we'll look at what happened there. What should we think about the Crusades? Is it all bad? Is it all good? Is it somewhere in between? Though the Crusades had some initial success in driving back Muslim forces, the gains were only temporary. In the 13th and 14th centuries, the Ottoman Empire, named after one of these Seljuk Turks, emerged to control Turkish lands. And so then, up until World War I, the Ottoman Empire is quite large. Ottoman Turks reign over a large territory in the Middle East from Turkey. So here is um, sort of the Middle Ages up until roughly the late 1600s. And all these different regions, groups, tribes, uh, how they grew. This is the Ottoman Empire. So it starts out as a very small brown area in Asia Minor. They take land from the Eastern Roman Empire. And then from there, once they take over much of these cities and the wealth of the Eastern Roman Empire, they began to expand and essentially conquer the Eastern Roman Empire. It takes them a thousand years to do it almost. So let's briefly just look at the teachings of Islam. 
the Quran contains material drawn from Judaism and Christianity. So here's where we get a little bit more theological. What is it they believe in? Where did it come from? And we only have a minute, so we won't get to go very deep. But for many years, it only existed in Arabic. But recently, the Quran's been translated into English. and has 114 chapters. No translations are considered authorized or authoritative. And Gabriel's the angel that supposedly gave this all to Muhammad over a two-year period. There's even debate. So in the Bible, we have all these manuscripts, and people get a little upset. What do you mean we have different manuscripts? You know, my King James says this, and my NASB says something a little different. That's a good thing, though. It's not good that there's different translations, but it is good that there's different manuscripts we can look at. What happened with the Quran is all these people were fighting right after Muhammad's death. And as time goes on, they end up saying, no, I have the true writings of Muhammad. Destroy that guy's writings. Burn that guy's. So it's really hard for historians to see what did actually Muhammad write versus what did his followers later burn and get rid of. So Quran is basic to the Muslim faith. It's called uh, the law, the Sharia law is there, understood as common law. So it's not a civil law like the U.S. government has a law, but it's common law. It's the law that everybody under Muslim territory should live, live by. It's understood as a total way of life as explicitly or implicitly commanded by God. It's at this point that Shiites and Sunnites or Sunnis do not agree. So we'll go through next week the six articles of faith that they believe, and then the five pillars of the Muslim faith. This is more apologetics than church history at this point, but it's a good time to just stop and say, what does this other religion out there believe? And uh, they talk about pilgrimage a lot. They go on jihad, even today you hear that term, holy war. And so we'll analyze it, compare it to Christianity, and then uh, move on. So we will meet the next two weeks and church history class, and then we'll have a break after that for the holidays. So more on that in in next week's bulletin. Any questions, please come see me afterwards. Sorry, we ran really quick through that today, but I wanted to go ahead and get it over with, you know, get through some of the Muslim stuff. It is important, I think, for apologetics, but more on that next week. Lord, we do thank you so much for your truth, that it persevered even though the Roman Empire has gone The barbarian kingdoms that came into that area are gone. Uh, Much of of what Islam took is now gone. Uh, Their false teaching, although it has spread around the world, we still today have the truth, the truth of Scripture. So thank you for preserving that, for preserving true churches, and help us to know your word better, to treasure it up in our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen.